This morning's scripture passage comes from the book of John, chapter 19, beginning in verse 17. If you're following along in the Pew Bibles, it can be found on page 905. Again, it's John 19, beginning in verse 17. And he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So if you've ever watched a live sporting event on television, you've probably seen some kind of replay while you've been watching. Often the television station will show you several different angles or perspectives of the same play. And each angle tells a story all of its own. Together they form a full picture, but each angle has its own story. So from the outset here in John 19, let me just tell you what my intention is. Each of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they each tell this story from their own unique vantage. Together, they all kind of form a, a, a perfectly full picture, but each of them provides a unique piece of the picture. John tells a story all of his own. So today, we don't just want to wander down a path that winds up as a generalized discussion of Jesus dying on the cross, though that would be a wonderful, worthwhile discussion to have. We don't want to miss this morning the unique and unrivaled message that John has to offer here. So what is it that John is communicating about the cross? What's his angle? Let's find out together this morning. So Jesus 
is bleeding profusely. His body probably going into shock. We talked about the different, different types of flogging he would have received last week. And despite the reality of the human limitation, the Roman custom at the time would be for the prisoner to carry their own cross to the site of their death. You can see that in verse 17. Now the prisoner, they would only carry the cross beam. They wouldn't carry the part that goes across. They wouldn't carry the whole entire thing. The vertical beam of the cross would have been normally kept at wherever the crucifixion would occur. And typically, these vertical beams would be kept alongside the highways just outside the city so that anyone and everyone could see the people that were being crucified. So the beam would have been placed across Jesus' shoulders, and the person's in his arms would have been pulled back and then hooked around it kind of like this. Even though it wasn't a full cross, it was no easy task. You can imagine a railroad tie being put on your shoulders. 75 to 100 pounds is what is what he's carrying, and Jesus sort of trudges to the cross. Other gospel writers tell us that at some point on the journey, Jesus just buckles under the pressure and under the weight, and he can't carry it anymore. So this man named Simon carries it the rest of the way for him. And finally, they arrive at this place called Golgotha, in verse 17, which is basically, maybe you're aware, the, the Hebrew Aramaic word for skull. Likely it was named this because the rock front of the hill here resembled a skull. And I've got a picture. It's kind of grainy. Um, but hopefully you can sort of see. Um, nope. <laughs> Towards the right there, uh, you can see kind of like two holes that might be the eye sockets and just beneath that, the nose. That's why uh, it was named the place of the skull, Golgotha, because it, it looked like a skull. Now part, part of the intent for Roman crucifixion was for Rome to very obviously press its thumb down on all the areas under their rule. So they lined their highways with crosses, and Jesus' cross was no different. He hung very near to a busy highway, and the not-so-subtle message when folks would travel down the highways would be, don't mess Rome, you might end up on a cross. It was a wicked, brutal means of controlling the masses. This brings us to verse 18. The first four words there hold the weights of an entire universe of meaning. There they crucified him. That just might be the most gigantic understatement. And I would like to dip in just for a moment to unpack what John's audience would have already known was packed into those four words. Jesus would have been laid on the ground with his arms stretched out across that beam. There they would nail his hands, right here kind of like in the base of the hands, the wrist area, nailing in the palm, as many artist renditions that you've probably seen through the years. Nailing here would not have provided enough strength to hold up the entire weight of a human body. The weight of the body would cause the nail to rip through the hand. So they nailed here, which would have been a stronger place to sustain the weight of a human body. After he was nailed down to the post, his body would have been hoisted up onto that vertical beam that was already firmly planted into the ground. If one of his disciples from, was watching from afar, maybe behind a rock or behind a tree or something, surely their minds would have drifted back to some of their experiences with, John, or with Jesus back in John 3 or John 12, when Jesus predicted that he would be lifted up from the earth for the salvation of his people. Now this is not lifted up as maybe sometimes we've seen depicted in modern art, it'd be more like eye level would, 
where, uh, would have been where Jesus was hanging. Everyone got a face-to-face experience with the misery and agony of crucifixion. And once his body is lifted up onto the cross, his feet and ankles would be nailed in place. Now, all kinds of postures were possible and used in crucifixions, but Romans generally nailed the ankles of their victims together and firmly fixed them to the cross, forcing their feet to sort of lay sideways like this, even as they were hanging like this. And the nail would go right through their ankles. And they would always keep a peg on the vertical posts for their victims to sit on. The intent of this peg was to prolong the suffering. The peg would allow victims to get just enough oxygen so that they wouldn't fully asphyxiate. Without the peg, they'd have to pull up much harder to get air into their lungs. Obviously, with the nails in their wrists, this would have been an excruciating amount of pain. So they put the peg there to make it less painful, so it might at first seem a mercy, the peg allowing them to breathe, but it was probably more of a curse because it prolonged the suffering. And if you can believe it, nailing wasn't really even the means of death on the cross. This was just the beginning. And so now the real stuff of crucifixion can begin to roll in, the real agony. All the ramifications of the previous hours of violence would rush in like a tidal wave, hemorrhaging, asphyxia, shock, all form this deadly cocktail for victims of crucifixion. This is why Josephus, who was a very prominent uh, Roman Jewish historian from the first century, who himself had observed many crucifixions, he called this the most wretched of all the deaths. C.S. Lewis expounds on the gory glory of this moment. He says, the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nail driven through the medial nerves, the repeated torture of back and arms as it is time after time for breath's sake, hitched up herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. Jesus' physical treatment here was wicked, but his physical placement was no less wrong. Of course, in the last couple of weeks, we learned that in order for Pilate to be willing to crucify Jesus, he had to release someone deserving of the same punishment. The crowd traded Jesus in to get Barabbas. Then verse 18 here indicates that Jesus was crucified in between two other cross-deserving criminals. He takes the place of criminals even as he is numbered among the criminals. Isaiah 53 whispers about this. Think about the passerby who had yet to hear of Jesus or even see Jesus, maybe somewhere in the Roman Republic. He would have seen this man in between two crosses. He would have been none the wiser. He might have been in town doing some business in Jerusalem and been thinking, Psh, whatever that guy did, serves him right. He had no idea that the man on that cross who is being numbered with sinners, was himself taking the place of sinners. Isn't it incredible that the cross, meant for Barabbas, meant for us, was used for Jesus? Guilty Barabbas walking free, exiting that prison as innocent Jesus walked to the cross. The weight of Barabbas' penalty falling off his shoulders as he with joy exits the prison, 
even as the weight of our sin began to weigh more heavily and heavily on the shoulders of Jesus. This morning we see Jesus' glory on the cross first. Jesus' glory on the cross. We touched on this last week, but what is the explanation for why the Father, why would God the Father allow such violence against his Son? Isn't this cosmic child abuse? How is it that when Jesus was at his weakest is when we see his glory most clearly. Well, I think the explanation for the violence lies within God's unrivaled holiness. His unrivaled holiness. The cross increases our awareness of God's holiness. His absolutely beautiful but terrifying otherness. That's what holiness is. It's set apart. It means that no one is like God. He's unrivaled. Think about this. Of all times in history, why did God send Jesus when crucifixion was the preferred means of execution? Why was Jesus born into this culture at this time? Was there not a more humane way to suffer for sin? Why couldn't Jesus be born into the modern day and suffer for our sins with a lethal injection? Or maybe even a hundred years ago, at the quick and painless hands of a firing squad. Why now? I think there can be only one explanation for the violence of the cross. And it's this. The cross clues us into the penalty that our sins deserve. God didn't take it easy on Jesus. There is no peaceful solution that can do away with the penalty that our sins have incurred. The cross is God's appropriate response to our sin. The blood, the gore, the violence of the cross is what God thinks and what God feels about your sin and about my sin. This is what is required to pay for our sin. You ever wondered what God thinks about your lust or your laziness, your anger or that innocent blow up at your spouse or kids? This is why. This is why we must run hard from cheap grace. Because the grace we enjoy from God through Jesus was not cheap. So costly. Infinitely costly. 20th century pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way. He said, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without the requiring of repentance. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus. Grace is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. You were bought with a steep, steep price, Christian. So whatever your sin struggle this morning, got that locked away in the back of your brain? Look to Jesus on the cross, struggling for breath, deeply bruised in wrist and foot, face and chest, violently bloodied from head to toe, bones sticking out of his skin, thorns penetrating his skull, head hung low over the weight, under the weight of his people's sin, and under the shame and the rejection of the Father. Look to this bloody image to see what God thinks of the sin that you're petting rather than killing. It isn't pretty. 
the grace of the cross we love to celebrate was not cheap. Jesus, in transcendent humility, stood in your place, he stood in my place, to receive the lashes that we deserve for the sin that barely even worries us. It doesn't even register. We try to remind our kids in our home of this concept. We tell our kids and we tell ourselves, we will not do things in our house, we will not celebrate things or laugh at things that Jesus suffered to pay for, that Jesus lost his blood for. Oh God, break us over the ways that we have broken your son, each of us in our own way, lusting, stealing, manipulating, hating, cheating. But here's the thing. This is heavy, super heavy. But if the cross does, in fact, increase our awareness of God's white-hot holiness, which it should, it can't help but remind us of Jesus' deep-down love for us. Jesus' deep-down love for you is expressed at the cross. It increases our awareness of Jesus' love. How is it that the Son of God would voluntarily choose to suffer in this way? Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago, when Jesus descended those steps from the upper room just hours before the account here in John 19, he could have popped that door open and turned left, walked out into the obscurity of darkness, avoiding arrest, avoiding accusation, avoiding agony, avoiding a curse from God, avoiding the rejection of his father, the father turning his face away, avoiding shame, avoiding death. But that is not the story of history. Instead of walking away from those things, he walked into them. The king of kings subjecting himself to the cruelty of his creatures, crucifixion on a cross, on purpose, intentionally, So I don't want us to too quickly this morning skip ahead to the cross's accomplishments, which we should love and celebrate. Don't skip too quickly across the accomplishments, to the accomplishments, without meditating on the actual price of the cross. Because the fact is that Jesus dug deep into his pockets of grace and love and paid a cross debt for you and me. It was either him or you. And thank God for those of us in Jesus. It was him and not us. Unfortunately, our house is not situated in a traditional neighborhood. So we are forced to celebrate Halloween in another neighborhood each year. Well, last year, we went to the Menches, and we went with the trick-or-treating with them in their neighborhood. The Menches live in one of those, how do you say this? full candy bar neighborhoods. You guys been in these neighborhoods before? I mean, people who are just straight up into Halloween. We've all been to those houses where people are like quartering out single pieces of Starburst to all the kids, and they don't even include the pink Starburst in that. Uh, But not the Mensch's neighborhood. We walked away with an absolute haul last year. We We actually went back this year and got no full candy bars. I don't know what's happened in the last year. If you guys want us back, you need to have a discussion uh, in your next uh, HOA meeting. I don't know if they save up for months or what, but those people in that neighborhood last year put out. 
The price someone pays for a thing is a reflection of their value for that thing. The cross is the central place for you to look and see God's love for you in Christ. If you look to your circumstances, you will get distracted. If you're hoping for a raise or healing or for material blessing as a demonstration of his love, you might be disappointed. Think for a second of who was at the foot of that cross. You can see it there in verses 25 and 26. And quick apology, I really wanted to spend more time in these two verses, but we're not going to have time this morning. But I, I, I do want you to think of who was there. You can see it in those two verses. And then think about who wasn't there. Jesus' dad was not there. History tells us that Joseph was likely long dead by the time Jesus was on the cross. But think about, think about Joseph. All that obedience, I mean, faith-filled, risk-taking obedience from Joseph. He married Mary, despite what it looked like to the masses. This lady who was pregnant and he had nothing to do with it, right. He went to Bethlehem. He moved to Egypt, back to Nazareth. All of that just to not experience the payoff of his son dying, but more than that, obviously, more importantly, triumphantly rising from the dead. That doesn't seem fair that Joseph would have to go through all that and not get the payoff. I just say this to you to communicate that God's love for you shouldn't be measured by an experience or by a perceived quality of life. I'm not saying that you shouldn't pray and beg and plead for God to do these sorts of things in our lives. But I am saying that the measure of God's love is demonstrated in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We deserve nothing but wrath. So to receive the grace of the cross should be enough for us. Joseph didn't get the payoff of that experience for his obedience, at least in human terms. But he no less experienced God's great love through his son. The measuring tape of God's love for you is found at the foot of the cross and not with the hand that you have been dealt in your life. It was either Jesus or you who was going to suffer that fate, the eternal just wrath of God. And thank God for those of us in Christ, it was him. Jesus paid the fee, and we owe nothing. The cross increases our awareness of God's holiness, not accepting of even a little sin. And it also increases our awareness of Jesus' love, who became sin for us. So in God's holiness and in Christ's love, we see the glory of Christ highlighted. But look, let's look secondly this morning, not only at his glory, but also at his control on the cross. Jesus' control on the cross. We covered a lot of this last week. But I want to show you again a few ironies that John points out here that demonstrate Jesus' supremacy. Once again, exerting fine-tuned control over the situation, even though it didn't look like it. Jesus is far more sovereign than any of us give him credit for. He's not just generally in control. He's explicitly in control. Even in your life, this is true. And I hope it anchors you. We'll observe this in the characters of this story. First note that Jesus demonstrates his control by compelling unconscious obedience. He compels unconscious obedience first from Pilate, then from the soldiers. And we'll see this in the title that he's been given here by Pilate. 
So look at his title, and you'll see Pilate's unconscious obedience in verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription, and he put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Skip down to the end of verse 20. It was written, this title was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. Now, why, th- why three languages? Well, Romans would understand the Latin. The Jews would be able to read the Aramaic. And the Greek was the universal language of the Medita- Mediterranean world at the time. So Pilate has, in effect, placed on public display an announcement for the entire world. Jesus' kingship is now available for the entire world to see. Jesus isn't just a provincial ruler over his little province. He's a supreme monarch. And Pilate is the one telling the world this. Man, this is just a, a, a prelude that would crescendo into a full-out, full-piece band singing and shouting the praises of Christ. Hear this culmination of John 19 from this morning all the way in Revelation 7. This is what Revelation 7 says. You can follow along on screen. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, like all the nations that were uh, written there on that sign on Jesus' cross, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Pilate. Poor Pilate. He had no idea that in creating this little title sign and nailing it to Jesus' cross, he had no idea that he was playing the first chord to a song that would last thousands of years and culminate here in Revelation 7. He had no idea. But do you know who did? King Jesus. And as his physical body expired, he must have just been filled, ironically, so filled with joy. Look at what's coming to me, thinking ahead to Revelation 7, an inheritance of nations. In this moment, with a simple, small, sarcastic sign made up of three different languages, prophecy was beginning to fulfill. The gospel was going to go to the nations. Pilate, ironically, unconsciously penned the truth because Jesus was in control. Last week, we talked about the fact that Jesus' costume was no costume. This week, it's Jesus' pretend title that isn't actually pretend. This is Pilate's unconscious obedience. Though his heart was full of malice and mockery, his hand had never penned truer words. Unconsciously, he was obeying God by proclaiming to the nations, Jesus is king! And you need his sacrifice to be right with God. Things weren't falling apart, even as Jesus' blood was falling down. Jesus was in control in history's bleakest hour. But there's another example of some unconscious obedience here. Look at verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, 
let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, and this is a direct quote for those of you who don't know from Psalm 22. It's what it says. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. So we see Jesus' control here in his clothes here, the soldiers' unconscious obedience. Psalm 22, quoted there in verse 24, was penned a thousand years before Jesus was crucified. And 600 years before crucifixion as a means of torture had been invented. So David is writing about a method of capital punishment that he knew nothing about and had never seen before. And there are two distinct fulfillments here. Look in verse 23 of John 19, and then glance up to verse 24, which quotes Psalm 22, if that isn't confusing. Let me read that again. Two fulfillments. Look in verse 23, and then glance, up, glance down to verse 24, which quotes Psalm 22. John says in 23, the soldiers took Jesus' garments and divided them. David predicted this a thousand years prior in Psalm 22. They divide my gar- garments among them. And probably these four parts, if you look there in verse 23, it was divided uh, in four parts, were a head covering, a belt, sandals, and some kind of outer cloak. Each of the soldiers would have gotten one of the pieces, one of these four pieces, kind of like as a trophy uh, for this crucifixion. But there was one more piece of clothing which brings with it another prophetic fulfillment. This would have been a seamless tunic, kind of like an undergarment that would have covered upper body and lower body. Likely it would have been one of the more costly items that Jesus had, which is why they gamble for it there in verse 24. John says, let it, John says that they said, the soldiers, let us not tear it, but cast lots. And then David, a thousand years prior, for my clothing, they cast lots. Look at that last phrase of 24. And I think this is a super comical phrase. So the soldiers did these things. What things? Well, they divided the garments and cast lots for the tunic. So the soldiers did these things. They did these things announced in Psalm 22, a thousand years earlier. But of course they did these things, right? Because Jesus' mock title wasn't a pretend title. He was actually the king, not only with influence in his empire, but with full control over the entire galaxy. Fine-tuned to even control the men that were playing rock, paper, scissors over who would get his tunic. He caused them to unconsciously, these dudes were Romans, they weren't some Jews trying to set Jesus up to fulfill the the prophetic words in Psalm 22. These guys had never read Psalm 22, didn't give a rip about Psalm 22. Jesus was compelling them to unconsciously obey the scriptures so that this story that we read thousands of years later would point to Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment in the Savior of the world. Jesus' sovereignty is ridiculous here. (laughs) Trust me, you want to be on his side when it is all said and done. He is able to do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. That's true power. The down and out Jesus pulling all the strings. I mean, these soldiers are legit sinning, crucifying the God-man, inflicting severe pain on the one that made them but they can't even send themselves out from under God's control. Even when they're hurting Jesus, they're under the control of Jesus. This should comfort you, Christian. 
you can't send yourself out from under God's control, under God's love. If you're his kid, you're his kid. He will hold you. He will not let you go. We will all look back over the course of history one day when we are with Jesus. And for each and every event throughout all of history, we'll all say, of course. That makes sense. I didn't see it then, but I see it now. God, you are angling for your glory and for our good. There won't be one thing where we're like, eh, I think you missed that one, Jesus. It won't happen. It's because Jesus' title wasn't an empty title. He was and he is the good and the sovereign king. Shown in his title, shown in his clothes, and now we'll see shown in his words. And this is Jesus' conscious obedience. Look at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Now Jesus' cry here is not a desperate plea to relieve a dryness of his mouth, or it's not just that. It's once again a subtle proclamation that he is the long-awaited Messiah. The true king of the Jews, like the sign said, and the true king of the universe. We won't take time to read these words, but Jesus is fulfilling words from Psalm 69 here. And when Jesus says this, he's not only fulfilling prophetic scriptures, he's also setting his soldiers up, these soldiers up, to drive his point home even more clearly. That he is the ultimate and final Passover lamb. We talked about last week that in these moments, just a few hundred yards away, that the Passover lambs are beginning to be slaughtered. Even as the final lamb was crawling up onto the altar of the cross to take it on the chin for mankind. Do you see how the soldiers respond to Jesus' request here? I thirst. Verse 29. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. This is not an insignificant detail. The soldiers put this red wine on a branch of hyssop. I think John's trying to be ironic again here. The hyssop detail is important because this was the plant used at the Passover to brush the lamb's blood on the doorposts of the Israelite homes. If you're not familiar with the Christian Bible or the Old Testament, you can read this for yourself in Exodus 12. But I don't think this is an accidental detail by John. He's gone out of his way to, over and over again, in the last couple of uh, weeks we've discussed this, to over and over again let his readers in on the Passover implications and the Passover details of what's going on here in this text. And so I think this is just another example in a long list. Back in Egypt, Exodus 12, the blood of the lamb painted on a doorpost with a hyssop branch would save the family from the agony of death. And here we find the bloodied and final lamb and a hyssop branch stepping in to save his family from the agony of eternal death under the righteous wrath of God. Jesus is claiming here to be the fulfillment of Psalm 69 and the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. Jesus is the final lamb. As the Passover lamb, he becomes the substitute for all of his people. (laughs) 
I got nothing. Okay, we're just uh, we'll try it again. Normally, I can come come up with some kind of funny statement to release the tension in the room, but I got nothing now. So let's just let it let it ride. Let's look at how one commentator describes this scene. He says, we cannot simply be enlightened by Jesus. We must see ourselves as saved, rescued from a crisis as terrible as slavery to the Egyptians. The pathos of the Passover story, its grim tale of slavery and the thrill of its redemption must be recreated in our hearts. We've got to put ourselves there, he's saying. If we are to appreciate the depth of what John saw when he witnessed Jesus dying on the cross, that Passover season. That's why the hyssop branch is not insignificant. Well, after Jesus tastes the wine, verse 30 indicates that he said one more thing. It is finished. This one word, it's one word in the original language, persuasively indicates that God has succeeded in accomplishing everything he designed in the life and the death of his son. And so Jesus' completion of God's will, Jesus' completion of God's will becomes ours, our completion of God's will through faith. Jesus' victory is the basis for our security. Your confidence in God, the assurance of your salvation, must not be anchored in your own religious performance. Why? Because by faith in Jesus, your performance is already finished. Even though experientially you're not done living yet, your performance is done in Jesus. It is finished. What was needed to satisfy God ought to satisfy us too. Jesus did it. It's finished. So we see that no matter whether you're aware of it or not, unconscious obedience or conscious obedience, your actions are going to work toward the glory of God. Conscious or unconscious, your life speaks to the greatness of God. I almost feel bad that this is an application again here, all of these ironies, but I think that's John's particular angle here this morning. We can't get away from it. The undertow of this text is meant to rip us off our feet and remind us that the flowing tide of true power and sovereignty of God is too much for us. We can't ultimately buck against it buck against it. And this is actually good news for us because it was just this power that convinced us of our need and breathed the breath of eternal life into our spiritual lungs. So I think we should walk away from a text like this with a few takeaways, a few reminders. First, God is frighteningly holy and executes inflexible justice. As followers and lovers of God, our lives should reflect this reality. We should be holy even as he is holy. And as unholy sinners, we need protection from his holiness. Which is why Jesus, this is good news, Jesus is amazingly loving and provides protection from God's holiness through a substitutionary sacrifice. So the first two takeaways and the third, Jesus is always in control despite the circumstances. Even though it didn't look like it on the cross, he was. And I think what this should do to us as Christians is inform a sort of intentional carefreeness. For those of us in Christ, 
We do not have to live angsty lives, wondering if the Father smiles on us or not. Are we okay? Because of the bloody Savior in John 19, God does smile on us. Not just smiles. He dances over us. Then he sings over us. When this reality takes a hold of you, it should cause a breakthrough for you, transforming your day-to-day. God's favor on us is costly, but it is ours in Jesus. You have the smile of the Father. I was walking my three-year-old to pick up her three sisters from school just this past week. And I was just, I was just taken by the way a three-year-old walks to school. Um, so carefree, not a thought in the world about dangers um, or, or the boss or how much you owe on that payment or whatever. Just, just carefree. I think it's a picture of how we ought to walk with Jesus. She just can't walk normally down the sidewalk. She's hopping. She's skipping. She's doing such wonderful, silly, foolish things. She's carefree. There's driveways on the left, speeding cars on the right, Susquehanna Road, but carefree on the sidewalk with her daddy. I actually took a video of it, and I want to show you real quick. (laughs) If you can't tell, it was Halloween, Wonder Woman right there. But after I I took that video, I had no intention of showing it to you this morning. Um, I I took the video and I sent Miriam a text that said, Lord, help me enjoy your care and provision in the same carefree way my daughter enjoys a walk down the sidewalk. Dangers on every side. Satan himself threatening to rip you from the Father's hand. But he can't. And he won't because of the wonderful cross, you can experience a taste of this carefreeness. This is what John wants us to read between the lines. Despite the optics, Jesus is in control. Even while he's dying, he's ruling. Trinity, Jesus is in control. You might be smack dab in the middle of the valley of the shadow of death. But know this, Jesus, our great shepherd, had his bleakest hour followed by history's brightest hour. Jesus didn't stay dead. The bleeding stopped. The hands healed. The lungs filled with oxygen. And the curse reversed. Jesus is in control. He was on the cross, so hold his hand on your sidewalk and just wait until all the sadness is undone and he comes to rule fully and finally as the unrivaled, unmocked, all-glorious king. Will you pray with me? Lord, I just want to pray that you'll help us You'll help us enjoy your care and provision in the same carefree way. Kids, enjoy normal old walks down the sidewalk. Help us see that the violence of the cross 
was the purest demonstration of love this world has ever seen. Help us revel in that. Help us rejoice in that. For the glory of your Son and for the good of our souls. Amen.